Hello all, and a very warm welcome on a cold January day to another edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 15 already. Where on earth does time go? I'm Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast. You guys are you. And thanks very much for taking time out and joining me today. I greatly appreciate it as always. So how's everyone? All well, I hope. Not full of January blues? All back to the rat race after eating and drinking your own body weight over the holidays like we all seem to feel we have to do? It seems that nearly all of my workmates have come back ill or been ill over the holidays, but I've managed to dodge that so far. And with everything crossed, I hope I continue to because I'm a terrible patient. I'll be the first person to admit. The stats have absolutely boomed this past month and the continued feedback, assistance and reviews that I get has been excellent. For people obsessed with murder, you're an alright bunch really, you true crime lot, aren't you? In all serious, thanks guys. Stuff like this is exactly why so many of us keep doing this each week and I reckon I speak for a lot of fellow podcasters by saying it does mean the world, each and every listen, like or review. So you rule. You really do. And as standard this week, I've got another great pod that you should look out for and I'm sure you're going to love. There's so many to choose from. I could do a couple of episodes just doing that. In fact, if anyone's got a promo of their pod and wants to swap, then I'm quite happy to tack them onto an episode of The True Crime Enthusiast because that's what being a community is all about really, isn't it? So my recommendation this week is The Unseen Podcast which despite its title, you can find on Apple Pods or wherever you get your podcasts from, as well as on the usual social media channels. It's a relatively new pod, it's only a couple of episodes in, but it's got a great focus and a very clear plan of what it wants to do. And from listening, you can tell that this will, I hope anyway, will go from strength to strength. In the Unseen podcast, the host Caprice covers famous and lesser-known cases of missing persons from the UK, and the research and presentation is clear, detailed, confident, excellent, plus a great accent as well. I won't spoil the contents of all the episodes, but I do have to say I think what I've enjoyed most about it so far has been the latest episode, because it covers some unidentified bodies from Wales over the years, and these are people who no one else will speak for or can speak for, So it's nice to see this covered and it echoes my mantra here that no one deserves to be forgotten. And there's relatively little information available about these people so kudos for taking on such difficult cases to cover for an episode. That's really impressive I think and it shows a massive passion and a dead good drive. Plus, and I swear I learned this and it's a good pub fact to bandy around, in one of the episodes I learned that Agatha Christie herself was one of the first Britons to stand up surfing. How ace is that? Are you intrigued? And please go and check it out. The Unseen Podcast. Details again will be with this week's show notes. And here we go then with part two of The Gay Slayer. I must remind you that this is the second part of a two-part story. So if you've missed part one, you'll probably appreciate it more if you go back and listen to that part first. Just so the chronology makes sense really. A quick recap is as follows though. In 1993, five homosexual men in London had been murdered in the most horrific of ways by a forensically aware, calculating killer who was proud of his crimes and liked not only to leave a chilling different signature at each scene, but to correspond with police and the press also. 
police did have two vital pieces of evidence. They had a portion of a fingerprint from the killer from one of the scenes, and they had a CCTV still of an unidentified man with a final victim that formed part of a press appeal. However, he hadn't been identified until a month after it had been released. A man walked into a solicitor's office in Southend-on-Sea and claimed that he needed a solicitor because he was the unidentified man in the still. Please be advised that this episode does contain disturbing depictions of crimes that the listener may find upsetting. As always, this is not to shock, it's to stay canonical to the facts. We don't do it any other way here, do we? So with this in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look at the concluding part of the tale of the Gay Slayer. The man that stood in the solicitor's office that day in Southend-on-Sea was over six feet tall, powerfully built, and had a gruff London accent. He claimed that he was indeed the man in the publicised CCTV still seen in company with Emmanuel Spiteri on the night of the 12th of June, and he claimed that he'd seen Emmanuel in the Colerne pub that evening, but had not left there with him. However, he had again seen him in Earl's Court Underground Station, and after some chatting up, had decided to accompany Emmanuel back to his flat in Hither Green Lane in Catford to have sex. The man claimed that he and Emmanuel had travelled by train there, but when they arrived back at Emmanuel's flat, there was another man already there, and not being interested in being involved in a threesome, he had left Emmanuel and the other man to it. He signed a written affidavit to this effect. Police were contacted and detectives from the Kensington Incident Room went to Southend-on-Sea to interview this man. He was arrested and placed under caution and was then interviewed about his claims as it's a matter of routine. What he was also subject to as a matter of routine was being fingerprinted. Under interview, he was to say nothing except refer to the affidavit that he had signed his story of having gone home that evening with Emmanuel through several trains, but upon arrival there was already another man there, and Emmanuel and this man had expressed interest in him joining them in having a sadomasochistic threesome. As this wasn't his thing, he had declined and left them to it. He could only offer a generally quite vague description of the third man, claiming him to be dark-haired, average-looking, aged about mid to late thirties. He claimed to have never before seen or have known any of the other victims and had not actually realised that the person he was going home with that evening was the latest victim of the gay slayer. It had taken him weeks to realise the coincidence that it was indeed Emmanuel Spiteri who he'd been with that evening. As this was the first person police had arrested in connection with the gay slayer murders and had in writing admitted to being the man seen with the latest victim, as he was being interviewed, a check of the fingerprints that, he had been, that had been taken from him before interview were made before he was released, to see if police had them on file. Sure enough, they did have them on file. Apart from matching the man's already existing criminal records which were held, they were found to be a perfect match with the fingerprint that police had found at the scene of Andrew Collier's murder. So police had this man in the interview room, who was not only the self-confirmed man in the CCTV video, and the last person known to have been with Emmanuel Spiteri, but who was also a match for the fingerprint found at the scene of Andrew Collier's murder, the previous one in the series. He also matched the physical description of a man who had been seen by many in the Cologne several times, and he had a gruff London accent, just like the killer 
who police had spoken to over the telephone several times. He would not explain why his fingerprint was at the scene of Andrew Collier's murder when he was confronted with this evidence, and this evidence was enough so that even after three days of questioning, where he had maintained a constant silence, he soon found himself charged with the murders of both Emmanuel Spiteri and Andrew Collier. No evidence linking him to the other three murders was found. He denied both charges and was sent to prison on remand awaiting trial for both murders. Nearly a month later, on the 19th of August 1993, as he was being driven from prison to attend a magistrate's court hearing, he told prison officers, You better fetch the police. I am the gay slayer. The man's name was Colin John Ireland. Colin John Ireland came into this world on the 16th of March 1954 in the former workhouse that is now West Hill Hospital in Dartford, Kent, and was the unplanned union of a 17-year-old newsagent's assistant, Patricia Ireland, and a father that did not want to know, and one that Colin never had any knowledge of. He was not named on Colin's birth certificate, and his mother was never to tell Colin who he was. A 17-year-old newsagent's assistant was unable to cope either financially or emotionally with the demands of motherhood alone, and she reached out to her parents to help her. Her parents were very supportive and welcomed Colin and his mother to live with them and their son in the Ireland family home in Myrtle Road in Dartford. This was their home until Colin was five years old, and was arguably the most stable time he was ever to know in his life. By 1959... Colin's mother was 22 years old and by this time felt able to provide a separate home for herself and her son and live independently from her family. So she and Colin moved into a house in Birch Road in the Kent town of Gravesend. But as with so many things, a happy ever after wasn't the instant thing that Colin's mother thought would be so easy. She found it hard to cope alone with a young child to support and had to rely upon part-time and unskilled work to make ends meet. Within just a short time, she and Colin had returned to his grandparents' house in Dartford. This started a pattern where she and Colin would save money, then move into a new property, only to find themselves struggling again and forced to leave. They moved back out of her parents' house in 1960 and went to live in Chester Road in Sidcup, but money troubles were again soon forcing them to leave. Too proud to return again to her parents' charity, Colin and his mother were forced to live in a squalid camp for homeless families in Maidstone in Kent, called West Morling. They spent three months here, and by the time they couldn't stand it any more, they returned to once again live with Colin's grandparents. But by 1961, things looked a bit more hopeful. Colin's mother had a new partner who Colin was fond of and the three of them soon moved into a property in Farnell Road in Dartford. Colin's mother soon married and Colin took his new stepfather's surname of Straker. But this again wasn't a fresh start for although Colin was treated very well by his stepfather and he liked him, his stepfather was an irresponsible man who would often abandon the family for days at a time. He was an electrician by trade but he did this irregularly and as a result the family suffered financially and were evicted for non-payment of rent more than once. By 1965, Colin and his mother had lived at nine different addresses in towns all over Kent. Unsurprisingly, this affected Colin's schooling. Because of the constant moves and changes of school, he would often join a class halfway through a term, where the friendship dynamics had already been firmly established. 
so he was the new kid everywhere he went, and as a result was the odd one out. Because kids can be cruel, as we all know, he was bullied for standing out, usually verbally and occasionally physically. Now I despise bullying in any form, and sometimes verbal abuse can be just as, if not more, damaging than physical abuse, can't it? Colin's response to this was to truant or plead to stay off school, and when he did go to school, he was frequently late to avoid any abuse dished out on the way there. Punishment for lateness was the cane, and this occurred so often to Colin that he was to later say to author Anna Jakoski, who was to extensively correspond with him after his arrest, The punishment for repeated lateness was the cane. I'm surprised that I grew up to be a sadist and not a masochist. That's quite a telling quote, I think. Colin had few friends throughout his schooling, but he did have some social structure and companionship throughout this time, as he was a member of the Sea Cadets for about two years. This came to a stop in 1964, though, when Colin was 10, as his family were evicted once again, and finances were so bad that Colin and his mother were forced to return to the homeless camp at Westmoreland for a bit, while his stepfather returned to live with his parents. By this time, Colin's mother was pregnant again, and even though another child would bring an increased emotional and financial strain, she wanted to have the baby. So Colin was placed with a foster family in Wainscott in Kent, where he lived for a few months before returning to the family, now with an added baby brother. The poverty due to the family's financial hardships grew worse now, and Patricia often had to go about food herself so that her children could eat. Not long after Colin returned to the family unit, his stepfather left the family for good, meaning that by age 10, Colin had had a father and stepfather leave him, had spent time in care and in a homeless family refuge, and had been bullied in school after school, where he had had to attend due to the nine different locations he had lived at in his short life. Now I know many people go through the same thing and in no way does this excuse any future horrific actions. But things like this of course have an effect on a person, especially happening before entering adolescence. It can understandably make a child feel bitter and resentful when he or she sees other children in a strong, stable family unit and you have the exact opposite. Two years later, Patricia married for a second time and this husband was to last and proved to be a decent man who loved his new family and worked hard to provide them with a stable home, although Colin was never to take his surname. The family moved to a house in Clyde Street in the town of Sheerness in North Kent and would stay here for a relatively stable period of five years, coinciding with Colin beginning secondary school education. There are no reports of Colin ever being anything but an unremarkable pupil at Sheerness Secondary School, but Colin was to later claim that during his secondary schooling, he was approached on at least four occasions that he admitted to by older men attempting to entice him into sexual activity, offering him money, goods or sweets in exchange. Colin was never to admit if any sexual contact had in fact occurred, but in correspondence to Anna Jakoski, he was to admit that out of desperation due to the poverty he lived in, he may have considered the offers. But then he'd say in the next breath that the offers angered and disgusted him. Or was he angry at himself for considering them? It was just the latest chapter in an already bleak childhood, and this rage and anger never left Colin after that. He first committed a crime in 1970, 
which was a theft of just £4 that he stole, planning to run away from an unhappy home and an unhappy school life and go to London. He was caught, though, and made subject of a fit person order, and sent to a school for maladjusted youngsters in Kent named Finchton Manor. After a few months, he found himself again the target of bullying here, and decided on a form of revenge against his persecutor. He set his bully's belongings on fire in the room that they shared. He was taken away from Finchton Manor as a result of this, and once he was, he absconded and began living rough in London, soon finding himself in trouble again. Aged just 17, Colin was soon in Hollersley Bay, open Borstal, after being arrested for burglary. He was to abscond from here as well, but he was recaptured and moved to stricter closed Borstals before being released in 1972. By 1975, Colin was again in trouble for burglary, theft of a car and damage to property. He received an 18-month prison sentence this time and served a year of this before being released in November 1976. This is a cycle that he was to repeat often. Prison, release, prison, release. In 1977, he was sentenced to 18 months for demanding with menace. In 1980, it was two years for robbery. In 1981, it was two months for attempted deception. And in 1985, it was six months for going equipped to cheat. Which, I'm not quite sure what going equipped to cheat is, really. But The periods in between incarceration were spent working in a variety of unskilled temporary jobs, including spells as a chef, a volunteer fireman, and a bouncer in various bars. Notably, one of them being a London gay club. But Colin could not sell. He was a drifter and he moved from place to place, job to job, relationship to relationship. But one thing that did remain a constant in his life was an interest in survivalism, learning to exist and survive in hostile conditions by using your strength and your wits. It's unsurprising, really. I mean, it's arguably what he'd been doing for all of his life up to that point. And it used to be a regular pastime of his. Like camping out in marshes and woodland and learning to live off the land. I have a friend who's very, very like that, actually. Smashing guy, but if you've been to the moon, he's been there on his mountain bike, you know, type of people. He's been to Old Zealand. It was a tough guy image that he loved, an image of being a someone that Colin desperately wanted to express. But this reputation was a facade, for Colin wasn't really any kind of survival expert. In fact... He was known amongst the Southern Rangers survivalist group he had joined as Chicken Colin because of his fondness for nipping into the nearest town for fried chicken when he was hungry and when they were supposed to be out on manoeuvres. It was in 1981 at one of the survivalism lectures he would regularly attend that he met the woman who was to become his first wife when he was aged 27. Colin was working in London at the time and at one of these survivalism lectures he met a woman called Virginia Zamet, who was nine years his senior. Virginia had a five-year-old daughter from a previous relationship, despite having been confined to a wheelchair since a car accident in 1969, and Colin and Virginia soon became a happy couple. He adored Virginia's daughter, and he'd spend hours and hours playing with her and taking her out, and he made enough of a good impression on Virginia that the couple were married just a year after meeting in 1982. But the marriage wasn't destined to last, for it was to be Colin's old story of not being able to settle. Before very long, he'd started to become violent and argumentative towards Virginia, 
and by the time 1985 came around, and with it a six-month prison sentence for Collins for going equipped to cheat, Virginia was having serious misgivings about whether she wanted to stay married to him or not. He had an affair with another woman not long after he was released from prison, and once Virginia found out about this, enough's enough, and she divorced him in 1987. Back to drifting for Colin, survivalism, trying to prove to people that he was a somebody, or perhaps more to himself. Two years later, in 1989, Colin was to marry again. He found his travels had taken him down to Devon, where he met the landlady of the Globe pub in the town of Buckfast, a lady called Janet Young, while he was on a survivalist weekend. Janet lived above the pub with her 11 and 13 year old children from her previous marriage, and within a week of first meeting, Colin was living with them. Within three months, Colin and Janet were married at Newton Abbott Register Office in Devon. Almost immediately, Janet was to realise what a mistake she'd made. The rows started almost immediately, and one night Colin threw Janet out of their bedroom, so she went to another room to defuse the situation. He followed her and he smashed all of the light bulbs. Then he chillingly stalked her in the darkness, saying, I'm over here. I'm over here. Sounds pleasant, that, doesn't it? And a bit pointless also. Unsurprisingly, this second marriage didn't last long either. It seems to have been another thing he grew tired of and couldn't settle with. For just a short time after they'd married, a mere few months, while Janet and her children were visiting Janet's parents in Margate, Colin decided to leave, but he didn't just leave, he left with Janet's car, the takings from the pub, he even cleaned out the joint bank account that the couple shared, leaving Janet and her children penniless. She was to never see him again, and unsurprisingly filed for divorce which was granted after a period of some months, but all the money he took from Janet wasn't to set him up with a new life or make a fresh start. Ever the drifter, by the time he was legally divorced from Janet in 1991, Colin was homeless yet again in Southend-on-Sea in Essex. Despite this, he began living and working in a shelter for the homeless, when for much of the time he did, he was homeless himself. Because of this, he could empathise with the predicaments of some of the guests, and this made him quite popular and well-liked by them. But equally, there were problems between him and other staff and volunteers at the shelter. Colin was accused of being overly physically familiar with some of the female volunteers. And the final straw came when an argument with the homosexual man who was living at the shelter at the time turned aggressive and horrendously violent. Colin was forced to leave there and he found himself a temporary job breaking up wooden pallets at a nearby adult training centre just to make ends meet which he found a demeaning job and a new low ebb in his life. This was just before Christmas 1992, and after a miserable Christmas with no prospects and the latest glaring failure weighing heavily upon him, Colin decided to take stock of his life. He was approaching 40 years old, he had two failed marriages behind him and a string of doomed love affairs, he'd been in prison several times, he was practically homeless, friendless, and he couldn't settle or last at anything. He had no skills of note or qualifications that could gain him a decent job. Even his survivalism wasn't something he could stick out. He would always take the easy way out. He was a nobody, a real failure, and he was tired of that. Thinking more and more about it did nothing to abate his anger, and it built and built until something in him snapped. 
Now, although what's been described here, I'm sure everyone would agree, sounds like a pretty crap start to life. Plenty of other people come from poverty and hardships like this, and they go on to make a success of their life, turn their lives around and decide to do good. Okay, so he's a crap partner and husband, and a criminal, but up to this point, he doesn't really stand out from countless other feckless people who are like this, does he? I'm sure we all know or know of someone who's like this. But at some point over that Christmas, he decided that the best way to make himself noticed and to be a somebody wasn't to change your ways and turn over a new leaf. No, it was to make yourself a serial killer. And he actually decided it was going to be his New Year's resolution. I mean, that's extreme, isn't it? You give up fags or you half-heartedly join the gym. You don't seriously and committedly decide to become a serial murderer. You don't think, I'm going to try really hard this year to become a serial murderer and stick to it, not get fed up after a month. Well, Colin Ireland did. But the way he saw it, what is the point of being an accomplished serial killer if you get away with it and nobody knows that it's you, so you can't have your moment in the limelight? Again, whilst on remand in prison awaiting trial for the murders of Andrew Collier and Emmanuel Spiteri, Colin had had many nights in a routine that he knew all too well and one that he hated to think about this. On remand, nobody knows what he's done. He's just another criminal. He hasn't had his day in court yet. He's done his job too well in his mind. The police haven't got anything to tie him to the other three murders. And this is his crowning glory in life, so he can't have that. So he accepts to himself that he is unlikely to ever come out of prison for two murders, which he knows that through his own negligence in not cleaning up as thoroughly as he thought he had, he'll be convicted of. And he decides that he's not being denied his infamy, and life may as well mean life for five murders instead of two. And more importantly, he gets the notoriety. This is why he decides to confess, because if he does, he retains control, at least in his mind anyway. Ireland's confessions took nearly two full days to record and they were given chillingly clearly without a hint of emotion. He began by emphasising four points in particular. That he had in no way ever been under the influence of alcohol or drugs when he committed each murder. That although he worked in a gay club as a bouncer in the past, he was in no way gay or bisexual himself that he had gained no sexual thrill from the killings, nor had engaged in any sexual activity or even undressed with any of the men, and that he had no particular grudge against the gay community. They were purely chosen as a victim pool because Ireland considered them an easy target. Ireland had been a lifelong reader of true crime books and had a fascination with serial killers. Does that sound familiar to anybody? and he decided to learn from the mistakes of infamous criminals to avoid capture. And the level of control and forensic awareness Ireland exercised through his killings was astounding. I mean, this is somebody who really properly planned and considered everything, and he really could think on his feet. First of all, he decided on a choice of target that he considered would solicit less public sympathy, that there were plenty of targets to choose from, and one that he possibly knew that the police would get very little cooperation from, the gay community. He knew about geographical profiling, in that killers tend to operate within their home or comfort range, usually within about seven miles, and for that reason decided to operate in an area that he was more than familiar and comfortable with, but lived a good distance from, London. 
well, more than the golden seven miles he'd read about, and which he'd selected for its also large gay community. Before setting out each time, he would empty his pockets of every personal item except purely cash, rather than run the risk of dropping any personal effects at the scene of a murder. He wore casual run-of-the-mill clothes, nothing too striking, and each time he brought with him a murder kit in a rucksack containing the lengths of sailing cord and handcuffs he used to restrain his victims, which were both generic brands and makes, giving little chance of them being traced back to him. There was also a complete change of clothes for him, a torch, disposable gloves. The rucksack was also used to remove any material items he may have touched or used at the murder scene. Plates, mugs, wine glasses, he even took unfinished food that he'd had away with him. And near enough, every surface he had touched or thought he may have touched was wiped thoroughly, even down to the batteries in his torch. These items were then taken away with him, and each time were disposed of by throwing the rucksack into a canal whilst on his train journey back home to South End. But always outside of the seven mile marker that Ireland had read was a killer's haven. Which it isn't actually always, is it really? There are many cases where killers strike over a much wider area. Peter Sutcliffe, anybody? Ireland's confessions to police do make for disturbing listening and an online search will find a number of documentaries concerning the case where you can hear and see him in his own words describing some aspects of his murders, and I do recommend watching them, just so you can see just how matter-of-fact this guy is in the extracts that are released. More than one police officer on the case was to remark upon the cold and casual way he described some of the most horrific acts you can imagine, as though he was discussing something trivial like going to the shops. He does come across as quite well-spoken, very relaxed, of sound mind and very considered in his confessions. On the 19th of August 1993, before he described any details about the crimes themselves, he offered the following explanation to police. I wasn't forced to do this. In fact, when I was last interviewed by the police for days, I kept my mouth shut. I said nothing on tape. I then spent a month in prison considering my mental state, my outlook on what had happened, and I probably didn't come to a decision until maybe yesterday. I wanted to create a situation where I couldn't really back out of my decision, so I deliberately spoke to prison officers. I said I was intending to change my plea to guilty. To the end, he still sounds like someone seeking that control, don't you think? Describing the night of his first murder, Ireland described how, although he had a a strong urge to kill, he wasn't sure if he'd go through with it, saying, I went to the Cologne that night feeling that if I was approached by a man as triggering particular feelings in me, men liking masochistic sex, I felt there was a likelihood I would kill. If I was left alone, it's just as likely I would have gone on my way and nothing had happened. But Peter Walker did approach him, and Ireland described what happened. I knew he was looking for masochistic sex. He wanted to be tied up, and that suited me fine, because once he was tied up, I'd be in complete control. We went in a cab to his flat in Battersea, and I put on a pair of gloves on the way. When they got back to Peter Walker's flat, Ireland told Walker to go and prepare, and then went through to the bedroom and handcuffed the naked Walker to the bed. He then administered a vicious beating to him, but worse was to come. Ireland said, Once he was tied to his four-poster bed, it was apparent my intentions were different to his. When he was tied up, 
I went and got a plastic bag from the kitchen, a carrier bag, and I stuck it over his head and just pretended to suffocate him. I took it away and told him how easy it would be for me to end it for him. He then said to me, I am going to die. And I said, yes you are. I did this a few times and I think in a way he wanted to die. He was quite controlled about it. In the end I killed him with a plastic bag. I put it over his head and I killed him. That's pretty chilling isn't it? Ireland then spent the night rummaging through Walker's personal effects and it was there that he found hospital correspondence that informed him that Walker had been HIV positive. This filled Ireland with a rage because Walker had not told him about this and had expected to have an intimate encounter with him. So he decided to humiliate Walker even after death. He knotted some condoms that he'd found in the bedroom and placed them in Walker's nose and mouth. Ireland then described how he spent the night in the flat watching television and he decided to leave in the morning so he could blend in with morning crowds and to not draw attention to himself. After killing Walker, I walked down the road and thought that anyone who looked at my face would be able to tell that I had just murdered somebody. I thought they'd be able to tell just by looking at me. I remembered losing my virginity and I remembered the same feeling. You're always buzzing. He revealed that the theft of money from Peter Walker's bank account, and this was the reason for the theft of at least £200 in each of the next two murders, was nothing more than to reimburse himself for the cost of replacing the items in his murder kit and travel expenses for his train tickets to London. Ireland would even destroy the trainers that he wore each time and would replace them with new ones and he'd buy new set new clothes, new gloves, new handcuffs, a new bag and replacement sailing cord. His second murder, that of Christopher Dunn, he claimed to have found much easier. I went out quite prepared to kill and I knew that when I saw the right man that would be it, I'd have him. He was just in there early evening. We got talking and I realised he was that type. Ireland and Dunn went home together, and when they were at Dunn's flat they had something to eat, and watched a hardcore bondage video together. It was found still in Dunn's video recorder. Ireland then told Dunn to get ready like he'd done with Peter Walker, and once he was restrained, a similar set of events happened. Dunn was beaten and whipped, and then Ireland described the horrific events that happened after that. After I tied Dunn up, I found his bank card. I asked him his PIN number, but it was one that struck me as totally ridiculous. I mean, there were three digits in a row that were the same. It wasn't a number that someone would choose, really. So I got a lighter and I stuck the flame to his testicles to force him to tell me what I wanted. The mirrors were arranged around the bed following Dunn's death because Ireland had decided that he wanted to shock and to leave some form of signature at the scene. In his own words, to let you know that I'd been there. He then repeated the same MO as with Peter Walker, the theft of money from the victim and disposal of the murder kit and any trace evidence. He had thoroughly enjoyed this killing and spurred on by it, proper in his killing phase now. He went on to kill again just a week later. Ireland next chillingly described killing Perry Bradley, the third victim. He was a businessman and had a flat nearby in Kensington. We went back to the flat and I tied him up. I asked him for his pin number and told him that I would torture him if he didn't give it to me. He told me he was quite happy to give me anything. I told him I was just a professional thief and all I wanted from him was money. I told him, 
It's going to be a long night, so you might as well get some sleep if you can. I just sat and listened to the radio, and he actually dropped off to sleep. There was no way I was going to allow him to wake up again. My plan was always to kill him. While he was asleep, I put a noose around his neck and strangled him. I throttled him with the noose. He barely came to, it was quite quick. Some, for instance, like Walker, took longer. Andrew Collier, Ireland claimed, was the only murder in which he felt any hostility towards his victim, which is an almost ludicrous thing to believe if you take that at face value. The acts that Ireland committed are beyond evil. But Collier had suffered more. He'd been horribly beaten and whipped. Parts of his body had been burned. His pubic hair had been burned off. And the signature at the scene with his pet cat, well, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? It was also similar to the Walker scene, with the arrangement in the 69 position at the scene, the use of condoms, the burning of pubic hair. Was this perhaps because, like Walker, Andrew Collier was HIV positive, and this disgusted and angered Ireland? There's some truth in that, because Ireland said, When he was dead, I went through his papers and discovered he was HIV. He had gone back with me to his place expecting a normal sexual encounter, but he had not told me he was an AIDS carrier. I was the killer, but he could have killed me. That annoyed me and I went fucking crazy. I wanted him to have no dignity in death, so I killed the cat. It was part anger, but also to increase the thrill of killing. You're not thinking normally when you do a thing like this. I was reaching a stage where you feel you have to step up a stage at a time. Ireland's final murder was that of Chef Emmanuel Spiteri. Once at his flat, I bound him, but he was becoming suspicious. The word had got around about the gay murders by now, and he was getting a bit worried. He was either a very brave man or a very stupid one who took a stranger home. But he was very brave. I told him I could be the killer for all he knew, and he just said, do whatever you want with me. I asked him for his PIN number and told him it wasn't my primary motivation to kill him really, it was more finance money. But of course, I couldn't let him stick around to identify me, so I put a noose around his neck and throttled him. Before leaving, I tried to set the place alight. When asked why he'd started a fire at this scene, Ireland replied, I once worked as a fireman. There is a bit of an arsonist in all firemen. I think there's something in me that's highly destructive, very cold. In some moods, I would quite happily burn the world down. So shock detectives had just spent two days recording a matter-of-fact confession from Colin Island. He'd gone from the no comment, maintaining a silent stance of his wannabe survivalist, to reveling in the lucid details of the murders he'd committed. And once he'd started talking, he came across as calm, collected, intelligent and well-spoken. He was examined by more than one psychologist who found no issue of mental illness or diminished responsibility with Ireland whatsoever. By his own admission, when he had committed the murders, he had not been drunk or drugged. He had not had sexual activity with any of the victims, although he must have implied it was on the cards to lull them into a false sense of security. He had decided to kill gay men because they were an easy and widely available target. And in a quote that shows just how evil and sadistic Ireland was, he added, It may just as well have been women. Because he had and made a full and frank confession to all five murders and changed his plea to guilty at a previous hearing, there was no need for a long trial. 
At the Old Bailey Court No. 1 on the 20th of December 1993, Colin John Ireland appeared before Mr Justice Sachs for sentencing. He received five life sentences, with Mr Justice Sachs telling him, In my view, it is absolutely clear you should never be released. To take one human life is an outrage. To take five is carnage. No one who had read the papers or listened to today's hearing can be anything other than revolted by your wickedness, which is almost beyond belief. By any standards, you are an exceptionally frightening and dangerous man. In cold blood and with great deliberation, you have killed five of your fellow human beings. You killed them in grotesque and cruel circumstances. You expressed the desire to be regarded as a serial killer. That must be matched by your detention for life. Again, in my view, it is absolutely clear you should never be released. With that, Colin John Ireland was taken down and added to the list of prisoners who accepted that for them, life would mean life, and they would die behind bars, their crimes being so appalling that they were issued a whole life tariff. But ironically, for someone who craved notoriety so much so that he decided to, as a New Year resolution to become a serial killer, because he confessed and pleaded guilty, he skipped a protracted trial, and so he sacrificed the publicity that helped other killers such as Peter Sutcliffe and Ian Brady and Myra Hindley to gain the infamy that their names have still to this day. He'd never be completely forgotten because of the sadistic crimes and deliberation with which he killed warranted him a place on the whole life tariff list, but his name isn't as familiar as others as was outlined at the beginning of the tale last week. Had you heard of him before now? Most of the comments I've seen this past week on Facebook or Twitter say that the majority hadn't. And life did mean life for Colin Ireland. He spent from 1993 in a succession of Category A maximum security prisons in the UK before finding himself in Monster Mansion itself, Her Majesty's Prison Wakefield in Yorkshire in 2012. Wakefield's got this nickname because it's due to the large number of high-profile infamous British criminals that it houses, I'm sure some of whom you'll meet in future episodes of the podcast. And Colin Ireland had been here since March 2008. On the morning of the 11th of February 2012, he fell in the icy exercise yard and fractured his left hip. He had surgery performed on the 13th of February and he was released from the hospital on the 17th of February. On the morning of the 21st of February, how many times can we say February in succession? He was found in a collapsed state while using the toilet. And despite the efforts of prison staff to resuscitate him, he couldn't be saved. He was pronounced dead at 9.24 that morning with cause of death being determined as pulmonary fibrosis. He was 57 years old. His death drew a line underneath the case of one of, in my opinion, the most evil and sadistic killers in British criminal history. I mean, this guy killed for the pure reason that he saw it as a stepping stone to him being a somebody. The sadist in him killed for pleasure and enjoyed telling the police about his crimes. What a massive control rush that must have been. It is also unparalleled in the UK for a killer at large to correspond with police hunting him to the extent that Ireland did. His crimes weren't for money, it was more like a project really, to see if it could be done, as he himself was to say more than once. 
It wasn't a revenge killing directed at each victim personally or a hired hit. None of the victims knew Ireland for more than a couple of hours. And although he was at great pains to make out that there wasn't a sexual element there and that he had not had any sexual contact whatsoever with any of the victims, I'm not convinced. I believe his choice of gay men as victims is interesting because I'm not convinced that Ireland did not have homosexual leanings himself or was at least conflicted about his sexuality. Was this the reason he couldn't make any of his heterosexual relationships last and was the underlying reason that he had two failed marriages? Was this the reason why he'd been heard saying things to some people who knew him such as I hate queers and had had such a violent argument with a gay man at the homeless shelter that led to him being dismissed? Was it because he saw and recognised something in himself that he couldn't face up to? Plus to choose a gay pub to hunt victims and to be able to blend in must have been a pretty convincing facade. If of course it was a facade because it was pretty easy for him to hide in plain sight. And can it really be believed that he was able to lure five men to their deaths without lulling them into any false sense of security with some form of physical sexual contact? Wouldn't that set alarm bells ringing or does everyone get someone home to have a bit without a kiss and a cuddle first? No, I don't think so. He could possibly have had sex with some or even all of the victims, but Ireland was far too forensically aware to have left any traces of his DNA at the scene, and he never admitted to it, so this is just pure speculation. I just don't believe that things could advance as far as tying someone up without any form of intimacy beforehand. I just don't believe it. I also doubt that he would have stopped at just five victims. It clearly got to the escalation stage with him, and the gaps between murders was getting shorter and shorter. I mean, he killed four times in a span of 17 days. It was the CCTV still that led to him being stopped, but not because someone had identified him from it. Nobody had within a month of it being released. But he had seen himself on it, and it had spooked him enough to make him stop killing and to formulate a contingency plan. Yes, he could come forward with a story about admitting he was the man with Emmanuel seen in the CCTV, but hadn't killed him. The other man who wanted a threesome had obviously done that. He was quietly confident that there was no evidence against him or in any of the other murders, and thought that he could ride out any questioning. I mean, after all, he's a survivalist, isn't he? So it blindsided him that police knew he was lying when they revealed to him that they had removed his fingerprint from the scene of the previous murder. But he still didn't confess there and then. Instead, he sweated on it for a couple of weeks, self-reflecting, before deciding to come and tell all, as though he had come to some sort of acceptance that he'd never be released and decided to get the notoriety he'd hoped for. An evil somebody is still a somebody after all, isn't it? Before he made his full confession, Ireland was to offer some insight about how he felt that supported this. He said, I feel that there is a side to my personality that can only be controlled by my being restricted to a prison regime. I think long-term prison establishments are humane and they take good care of you. I feel I'm okay within this restricted environment and I think I should be placed in a position where I can no longer inflict harm upon others. I feel there is a certain side of my character, not all of it by any means, but I'm probably 60-70% to 70% quite a reasonable human being most of the time. However, there is a side of my character that's quite cold and calculating. I feel that because of the confession I am about to make that I face an extensive prison sentence and that will restrict me, that will stop me harming other people. 
When my case comes to trial, any judge worth his salt is going to find me guilty and he will imprison me and by doing so allow me not to offend again for some time. That's all I wanted to say really. In prison, Ireland was to boast more than once that there were many other victims to his credit, but he did not name any or expand any further on this. Again, whether he was responsible for any more killings, or this was just prison boasting is unknown. Police have only ever considered one other death as being possibly connected to Ireland. In January 1993, a gay man was found dead in his home in South London. He lived alone with his dogs, like Peter Walker, and he'd been dead for a number of days. What's pretty gruesome about this is that his dogs had been locked up with him for days also, and out of desperation and hunger... Yeah, pretty grim, eh? It was deemed a sudden death at the time, but after Ireland's murders it was looked at as a possible connection. But there was no evidence to link it to Ireland, and he wasn't talking, so no charges could ever be brought. What do you think? Had Ireland killed before Peter Walker? I'm a bit conflicted about this. The publicity seeker in him says to me that he would have wanted to bask in any killing that he did and he wouldn't have been able to resist showing off his handiwork and therefore he hadn't committed any except the five he was convicted for. But on the other hand, his level of forensic awareness and control was too great for a first attempt, surely. Can you really get that polished from reading about it unless you actually take a list with you? I just don't know. There are several articles available for a search to read further on the case of the gay slayer Colin Island, plus plenty of documentaries to watch. I know I've thrown kind of a load of information at you over the course of both episodes, but there was a lot to cover and as you know, we like detail here on the True Crime Enthusiast. Strangely, there is no definitive book written about Ireland's horrific crimes. He's mentioned in chapters of several true crime books, but he doesn't have one of his own. And I find that quite strange, really. The nearest and best I can recommend is a book entitled Murder by Numbers by author Anna Jakoski. It's quite widely available and it does cover a number of UK serial killers throughout their history. Through unique research and correspondence with Ireland himself, so it's a pretty good scoop, really, that Anna's produced what I think is the canonical text about him and it does make for fascinating reading. So details of this and other books for further reading about the case that I've referred to to produce this and last week's episodes can be found with the episode notes this week also. One positive outcome of the Gay Slayer case was a massive improvement in relations between the Metropolitan Police and the gay community, as it was reported afterwards that it was possible that homophobia within the police had possibly hampered the investigation into Ireland's murders. It led to active liaison officers from the Met establishing close working links with Gallup, which has now stemmed from a network of gay and lesbian police to a fully established charity. It offers support to the LGBT community who may have experienced hate crime, sexual violence or domestic abuse, or indeed people who have encountered problems with the police or the criminal justice system. A link to the Gallup website can again be found with this week's show notes. There was also a massive improvement in communications between different divisions of the police, which has of course become much easier as technology has improved over the years. It's likely that if this was to happen nowadays, and it has fairly recently with the case of Stephen Port, then social media, 
Improved CCTV and communication get the words out faster, with information being shared more quickly and to a wider audience, meaning there's more chance of catching the killer quicker and with them having claimed less lives. So Colin Island, hell of a story this one, wasn't it? I hope you can see why it justified a two-part story. There's so much to the tale and I've tried to sort the wheat from the chaff, which I hope I've managed to do here and I hope that it's a story you've been entertained and intrigued by. I know it's a bit of a disturbing one, but it is one worth reading up on and I shall add this to the WordPress blog very soon. The posted thread was very, very active for part one of this episode on the Facebook podcast discussion group and I hope that the second one will be the same when it's up very, very soon. I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions on it. If you do go on there, please say hi to the new moderator who, like some truck driving online moderating Mad Max, has very kindly joined me to assist in keeping order on there, Jason Abercrombie. He's a great guy, very supportive and helpful, and I'm sure that's a name familiar to a lot of you. Once again, please check the show notes out if anybody wants details of the recommended books concerning the Ireland case. Links to them will be there, plus a link to the Gallup website is up there too, as I said. And of course, please use social media if you want to get in touch about the episode, or you have an idea for a case you think is a good fit for a future episode, or if you just want to shoot the breeze, even just to give me abuse, or perhaps a nice iTunes review, whatever. Hopefully not to give me abuse though. You know where I am anyway, and it will of course be wonderful to hear from you. Thanks guys for joining me for True Crime Tuesday. It'll roll back around before you know it, and I'll be back with it. So until then, be safe, have a great week, and I'll catch you then. Goodbye for now all.